What exit? asks Menendez. What debate? asks Trump. And what impeachment? asks Matt Gates. It's a midday matinee kind of day for Lauren Boebert on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 402 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Just as House Republicans were making it clear to everyone that they were more interested in making an ideological point than saving the country from a government shutdown, Democrats were facing a crisis of their own. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who said he plans to seek re-election next year, was indicted last Friday, along with his wife and others, on bribery charges. Here's U.S. Attorney Damian Williams. Today I'm announcing that my office has obtained a three-count indictment charging Senator Robert Menendez, his wife Nadine Menendez, and three New Jersey businessmen, while Hannah, Jose Uribe, and Fred Davies for bribery offenses. The investigation that led to these charges has been run out of the Southern District of New York. The indictment alleges that between 2018 and 2022, Senator Menendez the senior U.S. Senator from New Jersey and the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and his wife, Nadine Menendez, engaged in a corrupt relationship with Hanna, Uribe, and Davies. The indictment alleges that through that relationship, the Senator and his wife accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in exchange for Senator Menendez using his power and influence to protect and to enrich those businessmen and to benefit the government of Egypt. The indictment alleges that Hana, Uribe, and Davies provided bribes in the form of cash, gold, home mortgage payments, a low-show or a no-show job for Nadine Menendez, a Mercedes-Benz, and other things of value to the senator and his wife. Menendez, a longtime Democratic powerhouse, was indicted once before in an unrelated case that was dismissed in 2017 after a jury was unable to reach a verdict. He was defiant in a Monday news conference, insisting on his innocence. I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. A cornerstone of the foundation of American democracy and our justice system is the principle that all people are presumed innocent until proven guilty. I ask for nothing more and deserve nothing less. The court of public opinion is no substitute for our revered justice system. We cannot set aside the presumption of innocence for political expediency when the harm is irrevocable. To those who have rushed to judgment, you have done so based on a limited set of facts framed by the prosecution to be as salacious as possible. Instead of waiting for all the facts to be presented, others have rushed to judgment because they see a political opportunity for themselves or those around them. All I humbly ask for in this moment in my colleagues in Congress, the elected leaders and the advocates of New Jersey that I have worked 
with for years, as well as each person who calls New Jersey home, is to pause and allow for all the facts to be presented. But many Democrats, aware of the optics that attacking Donald Trump's lack of ethics while at the same time defending Menendez would be indefensible, have called on the senator to resign. That list includes New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, and many members of the House. The list does not include his fellow Jersey Senator, Cory Booker, who has remained silent in the aftermath of the indictment. We'll leave the discussion about what Menendez's indictment means for U.S. foreign policy and American relations with Egypt for someone else. And yes, of course, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But the prediction here is that he'll resign his seat well before the case reaches the courtroom. Congressman Andy Kim, in his third term, said he would challenge Menendez for the Democratic nomination, and others may join in. The one Republican already in the race is Christine Serrano-Glasner, the mayor of the small town of Mendham. No Republican has won a Senate race in New Jersey since 1972. Former Governor Chris Christie, a 2024 presidential hopeful, told Kristen Welker on NBC's Meet the Press that he would not run. Would you run against Senator Menendez if you don't win in the fall? No, I have no interest in being in the United States Senate. You, you rule it out completely. Yes, I have. I have throughout my entire career. I had a chance to appoint myself to the United States Senate, Kristen, in 2013 when Frank Lautenberg passed away and I was governor. If I didn't appoint myself um, to the United States Senate, the easiest way to get there, um, I sure as heck am not going to run for it. The Democratic situation in New Jersey hardly means that the Republicans don't have more problems of their own. In addition to the blasé response to a government shutdown, the threat to end the speakership of Kevin McCarthy, and Lauren Boebert's choice of snacks in a theater. Donald Trump, posting on Truth Social on Friday, said departing Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley was, quote, a train wreck and, in falsely charging him with treasonous conduct with Chinese defense officials, wrote, This is an act so egregious that, in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Death, naturally, was typed in all caps. Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar, whose own behavior has crossed the kind of lines that Republicans would condemn if it were done by a Democrat, then followed by writing that Milley should be hung for his response to the January 6th insurrection. And speaking of January 6th and hanging, we might as well add the case of the mother of Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was killed while storming the Capitol on January 6th. The mother, a dedicated Trumper like her daughter, was speaking to a patriotic group and said this about former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. They're guilty of nefarious things. They answer to Congress, which means that day that would be Nancy Pelosi. So I also, being an equal opportunity rope swinger, I think Nancy Pelosi belongs at the end of a rope. Oh, but please, let's complain about how John Fetterman dresses. The madness continues. The breakdown of civility continues. And warning signs that we're headed into chaos go unabated. There are some problems in politics whose solutions are so obvious 
that you wonder why it took so long to be resolved. Take the House of Representatives. By all accounts, the House needs to pass funding bills in order to avoid what would be a calamitous government shutdown. The obvious solution? Impeach Joe Biden. You know, in the months that we were gone, in the weeks, House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. Allegations, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said. We're going to impeach because of allegations. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. And as to the question, is what Hunter Biden did enough of a reason to remove the president, we should realize that as much as Republicans in Congress have obsessed over the president's son for all this time, the real reason for impeachment can be summed up in one word, retribution. Trump hit the nail on the head in his interview with Megyn Kelly. And they did it to me. And had they not done it to me, I think, and nobody officially said this, but I think had they not done it to me, and I'm very popular in the region. You know, they like me and I like them, the Republican Party. Uh, perhaps you wouldn't have it being done to them. Trump has called on his fellow Republicans to push for Biden's impeachment because, as he wrote in all caps on social media, they did it to us. I've never heard of that as a reason to impeach a president. Is impeachment one of those things Kevin McCarthy agreed to pursue in his effort to keep his job? Will it satisfy the Matt Gateses of the world? Or will there be more demands put on McCarthy? That's just some of the questions I have for Jack Pitney. He's the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Politics at Claremont McKenna College and an expert on Congress. He's the author of numerous books, the latest being Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Always enjoy being here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Impeachment used to be a process designed to, you know, you bring up charges against a president, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Do you impeach the president to placate those on the right who don't like the speaker's budget tactics? I mean, that's almost what it sounds like is happening. Do you impeach the president to exact revenge for what happened to Trump? Because that's what Trump is saying. What's happening? Well, it's the normalization of impeachment. Uh, Republicans want to use the process simply for political purposes. The problem is, if that is the precedent that they set, uh, they're not going to like it in the future when uh, the same low bar uh, applies to future Republican presidents. Uh, in the case of Trump, uh, they're arguing, well, he was impeached over nothing. Of course, he was impeached over real uh, offenses oh, about which there was real evidence. In the case of the first impeachment, uh, the records of his uh, attempted extortion of a Zelensky, and of course, in the second one, the evidence of their plain eyes, the insurrection that he instigated. Uh, so this is not uh, remotely in the same category. I mean, yes, there's Donald Trump, but there's, there's parts of it that, that's all about Donald Trump. But I guess it's also about Kevin McCarthy and the demands being put on him by the right wing of House Republicans, right? Yeah, and uh, part of the problem is Kevin McCarthy got to where he is by being a people pleaser. 
Uh, he's a glad hander. He's a fundraiser. He's great at telling people what they want to hear. The trouble is when you get to be speaker, you sometimes have to tell people what they don't want to hear. You have to lead. And uh, this is a case of the Peter Principle in practice. He's reached his level of incompetence. Well, you know, there's never, there was never going to be 60 votes in the Senate to convict Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, and everybody knew that. But the House Republicans behind the impeach Joe Biden effort, they're not even pretending that that's the goal, are they? No, uh, the whole thing is uh, all about politics. And again, Kevin McCarthy is an example. A few years ago, he uh, looked like he was on the verge of becoming the leader. And then he acknowledged out in the open on TV that the whole reason for the Benghazi hearing was to bring down Hillary Clinton. Uh, That was the classic case of saying the quiet part out loud. So uh, he probably went along with this, not thinking about the long-term implications. What surprises me, what I listen to when I look for, for what all the players are saying, they keep, Kevin McCarthy said this over and over again, there are allegations. Now, usually they go for an impeachment inquiry because they have something substantial or they have, you know, a smoking gun or something. But allegations are, I mean, anybody can make an allegation. And yes, there are some probably ugly stuff involving Hunter Biden, I'm sure he's done some unsavory things, but other than the acknowledgement that Joe Biden got on the phone with Hunter and some of his clients, has anything been proven that suggests more? No, uh, nothing has been proven that suggests more. And uh, that's a difference between this and uh, previous impeachments or impeachment uh, inquiries. In the case of Richard Nixon, there was an abundance of evidence, both uh, in the press and in the uh, Senate hearings, indicating that something was terribly wrong. As John Dean said, a cancer was growing on the White House. Uh, Bill Clinton, whether you uh, think that met the level of impeachment or not, there was something real going on there. Uh, that isn't the case here. What do you make of the decision by McCarthy not to have the House vote on the inquiry? You know, he announced it on his own. And I think in the past he said that, you know, the full House needed to vote on any kind of uh, impeachment inquiry. Does that does that indicate that Republican support for impeachment, or at least at this stage, may be soft? Uh, certainly among some Republicans, there are some who represent Biden districts. Others may be uh, reluctant to acknowledge that there's not a lot of evidence here, and uh, they just don't want to touch it. Uh, and that's why he did a 180 from his position with the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He uh, severely criticized Nancy Pelosi for taking the first steps without a vote of the House. And even just a few weeks earlier this month, he uh, indicated that he was going to bring it up for a vote. Uh, so he is not a tower of consistency. You know, you think of all the rep- – they're not that many, but when you think of the Republicans who voted for Trump's impeachment – Uh, Most of them are are no longer in the House. They either were defeated in the primary or they realized the handwriting on the wall and they decided not to run again. But also not having a vote does save some, you know, Republicans in Biden districts. it, It keeps them from having to go on record because it could come and bite them in the end, either from Democrats in their district or a Republican challenger in the primary. Uh, that's right. They uh, got saved from one unpopular vote. Uh, the trouble is, 
more unpopular votes are coming over the budget and other matters, and Kevin McCarthy's going to find it's very difficult uh, to save his vulnerable members. Uh, one very possible outcome of the next election, something we uh, I don't think we've seen before, is uh, although the Senate is uh, likely to flip to the uh, Republicans, the House simultaneously could flip to the Democrats. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, thinking that maybe McCarthy might have placated the right wing by bringing this up. But I'm going to play a big uh, a chunk of tape from Matt Gates of Florida, who's on the House floor, and basically saying, sure, let's have this impeachment, but but that's not getting McCarthy off the hook. And, and, and we're watching him, and we could have, you know, we could have a vote to remove him as speaker. We demand real oversight against this weaponized government. Just look at the bribery. If tens of millions of dollars flowing from foreign corrupt people into the bank accounts of the Biden family wasn't enough for actual impeachment, why were we even looking? Joe Biden deserves impeachment for converting the vice presidency into an ATM machine for virtually his entire family. We all see it. We all know it. Now, moments ago, Speaker McCarthy endorsed an impeachment inquiry. This is a baby step following weeks of pressure from House conservatives to do more. We must move faster. No continuing resolutions, individual spending bills are bust, votes on balanced budgets and term limits, subpoenas for Hunter Biden and the members of the Biden family who've been grifting off of this country, and the impeachment for Joe Biden that he so richly deserves. Do these things or face a motion to vacate the chair. And let me alert the country, a motion to vacate might not pass at first, but it might before the 15th vote. And if Democrats bail out McCarthy, as they may do, then I will lead the resistance to this uniparty and the Biden-McCarthy-Jeffries government that they are attempting to build. I know that Washington isn't a town where people are known for keeping their word. Well, Speaker McCarthy, I'm here to hold you to yours. What the speech reminds me of is what Michael Caine said in The Dark Knight. He was explaining the Joker, and he was telling a story about terrorists who uh, couldn't be bought off uh, because uh, they don't believe in rational things like money. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Well, you know, you, you think, you know, sometimes you watch Matt Gates and you say that this is all about ego and, and uh, you know, he has to be the center of attention. But at the same time, McCarthy probably did promise his soul, sell his soul to become speaker. And, and Gates and others are saying that he's not fulfilling his, his promises. Uh, that's right. Kevin McCarthy should have watched more episodes of The Twilight Zone because he would have learned that selling your soul never works. I know McCarthy has long wanted to be speaker, and we know it because we've said it over and over again, that he would seemingly, seemingly do whatever is asked of him. But do you think there'll ever be a time like, you know, John Boehner before him when he says this job isn't worth selling my manhood for and simply walk away? Uh, it's possible, but... Uh... Kevin McCarthy is much more focused on the speakership than John Boehner ever was. Uh, Boehner had a successful career as uh, education and workforce chair. 
uh, you know, not something that uh, Boehner woke up every morning thinking of. Uh, that's different with uh, Kevin McCarthy. He was a Republican leader here in California in the Assembly. He knew he could never be Speaker there. Uh, and so this is what he set his, uh, set his uh, mind to. I think one thing he's going to have to do at some point is make a deal with Democrats and hope that that doesn't lead to his ouster as Speaker. And that's something Democrats might grudgingly go along with because they know that the next Speaker would be even worse from their perspective. <laughs> Don't you think that any deal that McCarthy makes with Democrats would just light a fire under Gates and all those real strong conservatives, hard-right conservatives, say, he's, he, you know, McCarthy has got to go? Uh, that's the uh, risk he has to take. Uh, yeah, he is going to alienate some uh, hardline Republicans. Uh, probably, though, uh, a lot of Republicans would be okay with not shutting the government down. And, uh, it, you know, it's one thing uh, for a speaker to say we shouldn't move legislation that doesn't have support of a majority of uh, people of our party. That more or less has been the practice of speakers for a long time. Uh, but it's another to say uh, we should never move uh, any legislation uh, unless we can do it without any support from the other party. That's an entirely different situation, and that's something previous speakers didn't do. And uh, so I think a lot of Republicans are probably mature enough to recognize that uh, at least some degree of bipartisanship is necessary to run the government. And uh, I think, again, if uh, there were a motion to vacate, a lot of Democrats probably uh, would vote present, thereby, thereby reducing uh, the uh, number necessary to save McCarthy. You know, you alluded to this, to this earlier in our chat here, but um, you're a longtime student of, of Congress. And, you know, once upon a time, it was rare for a House member to be censured. And then McCarthy and the Republicans censured Adam Schiff because they didn't like how he treated President Trump. Now an impeachment inquiry into Biden because, you know, as Trump suggested, Democrats did it to him. Do we think, do you think, that such actions are going to be more and more common and more frequent as we go on? Uh, I hope not, but I'm afraid they will be. Uh, censure used to be reserved for genuine ethics violations. Uh, and taking a position that the majority party disagrees with doesn't fall in that category. Uh, impeachment, uh, they're just doing it on the basis of allegations. Well, there are all kinds of allegations. There are allegations about the grassy knoll to this day. Uh, but that doesn't mean you uh, uh, proceed uh, with uh, some kind of official investigation. Jack Pitney is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Politics at Claremont McKenna College and an unimpeachable expert on Congress. Jack, it was great having you on the program. Well, thank you. On Wednesday, the Republicans who say they want to be president and whose name is not Donald Trump will meet in their second debate, this one at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. 
In the four weeks plus since the first debate, there's been a lot of ink about who got a boost and who suffered setbacks on that Milwaukee stage. But the fact remains that Trump, who refused to attend the first debate and who won't attend the second one either, is still heads and shoulders above the rest of the pack. Mike Murphy is a Republican strategist and consultant who has worked for or advised GOP candidates such as John McCain, Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, Lamar Alexander, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Definitely not, and never has been, a fan of Donald Trump. He's a senior partner at Revolution Agency, a political advertising and consulting firm, and he's the co-host, along with former Obama aide David Axelrod, of the Hacks on Tap podcast, probably the second most interesting podcast in the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Ken, as you know, I'm a super Rudin fan. It is always a pleasure to be here. Well, Great podcast. Thank you. And, and I always broadcast en- and everything. And whatever, whatever we are, I always enjoy having you on. Well, anyway, I'll get to the debate stuff in a minute, but I was wondering what you thought about Mitt Romney and the comments he made about his Republican colleagues. Now, I mean, I know he's not running again, so maybe that made it easier to be so open and honest, but, but wow, right? Yeah, you know, I I was happy to see it. Mitt's a good friend of mine. I ran his governor's race in Massachusetts. So we're close, and, you know, I, I, I see him on a regular basis. And that's the Mitt Romney I know. You know, he's very funny. He's very smart. He's a real patriot. And so I'm glad the country got to see a little of it now that he's freed of the shackles of surviving in a caucus. I mean, they don't really pay you enough to have lunch with Ted Cruz every week. Uh, in, in that line of work. And I, I think Mitt took a look at it. I had had dinner with him not long before his announcement. And he said, there's this bipartisan group of senators who actually meet quietly and get stuff done because the place is so broken. And a lot of them aren't coming back. So I think a big question for him was, you know, what, what is the input uh, or the, the positive contribution I can make on serious stuff if nobody's there? You know, I'm essentially near alone, at least in the Republican Party. So uh, I think he's doing the country quite a quite a service by by being grown up and frank and talking about the frankly the cancer of crazy that we have in the Republican Party and the cynicism in, in big parts of the Democratic Party. So uh, bravo, and I, I hope he keeps talking. I mean, did you see it all that this move coming? Well, I you know I, uh, our conversations are private, so I. I, I, I want to keep it that way. But I know he was wrestling with the decision because he, he for a, there are reasons, I mean, he wants to make a contribution. You, if you can put truth serum into a lot of people in both parties about some of the legislative accomplishments that actually got done, be it the, you know, the heavily Republican Senate-supported parts of the infrastructure bill, uh, you, you, you can kind of rattle down Electoral College Reform Act, important stuff. They're all tell you Romney was in the middle of it. Uh, so he, he's a serious legislator, and I think he was trying to find what the opportunities would be. On the other hand, he, as he said, you know, he's getting older, and, uh, you know, it was in many ways time. So uh, he's, he's one of the most impressive people. It's funny, when I started working for him when he was running for governor and beyond, my cynical political friends would ask me about Mitt, and I go, you got to understand he's Elliot Ness. And they're also cynical. None of them believe it. I remember David Plus kind of unfortunate remark during the presidential campaign that Romney has no core. Well, actually, no, he, 
he has one hell of a core, and I think the country's seen it for the last decade. You know, my first reaction uh, was that his decision was regrettable because, you know, with him gone, there's no longer anyone in the Senate on the Republican side who'll tell the truth about Trump. But, but the more I thought of it, the more I felt that, you know, he would be more isolated and more shunned than he was before the book came out. And basically, I felt he had no choice but to bow out. Yeah, I, I think he, he could have won re-election and he could have stayed and he would have still had a mighty impact. Any one senator can. But you're right. The knife and fork eating caucus of the Republican Party is down to low single digits in the Senate. Very low single digits. Now, privately, of course, we're with you. You know, um, a lot of them kind of talk like Romney a little bit, but they're all afraid of their primary voters. And they're afraid of Trump. So, you know, we're, we're see how it unfolds. You know, it's interesting, you know, to see all these Democrats and, and liberals who are saying such nice things about him now. Of course, nothing like, you know, when he was running for president. Same thing with, with Chris Christie. You know, now that he's a leading anti-Trumper in the party, liberals love what he has to say. But boy, they did not love him back in the, uh, the days of closing no, out. No, for they they're a little unfair. I remember he got criticized for being too fancy because he got a Harvard MBA and law degree simultaneously. And I'm like, yeah, that's the way the Chinese communists do it. They move morons to the top. You know, that's what we need, more morons. You know, it's funny. I have a friend who's a, a now retired Republican member of Congress who voted for impeachment at great political cost. And he said, you know, all my Dem friends who I love, and I'm a bipartisan guy, come up to me and congratulate me for standing up. And I'm smiling and shaking her hands. What I'm thinking is, don't be so sure if there was a Democratic Trump that you wouldn't all be doing what 80 percent of the Republican Party is doing to save their skins, the electeds. You know, it, it's the easiest thing in the world to do is condemn Trump as a Democrat when there's no political cost. So you all, you all kind of act like it would never happen there. But you should thank your lucky stars you're never tested. So back to the Republican presidential field of candidates, what did you yes. make? What you make of the first debate? Well, one, I'm I'm a contrarian on many of these things. I'm not a big fan of the Washington conventional wisdom. It's all driven by national polls that give you a good idea what happened two weeks ago. Um, I thought it was a mistake for Trump not to go, simply because when you yield the stage, you give somebody else a moment to become a star. And Nikki Haley, whose campaign was fading out hadn't raised as much money, hadn't gotten a lot of early traction, um, a lot like Scott Walker, uh, who people may remember yeah, from. right. The front-runner. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the front-runner in Iowa, who was the no-runner by the end of it, ran out of money. Anyway, she had an opportunity to do very well and get in the race. And now we're seeing in the early state polling she's moving up, arguably in kind of a tie for second, but she's the one with the dynamism moving up. And I'm not a big Haley fan, by the way. I think she's very cynical. But compared to Trump, she's stature, so I'll take her in a minute. And she's moving up, and now by not being at the second debate, one, the subtext is weakness. Now, he may say, oh, the polls show I'm going to win. The media all says national polls show he's going to win. By the way, we, we don't have a national primary. You know, we have state primaries, as you know better than anybody, that elect delegates. So these national polls are measuring kind of the, it's like buying a car based on how, how heavy it is or something. It's the wrong kind of measurement this early to predict. But... Trump's certainly in a commanding position, but I don't, I don't think it's a total lock. And he's creating a star opponent. So if she does well again and is more adroit this time, and I'm, I'm going to have a substack up on this later on my little substack thing I'm playing with. If she um, 
instead of kind of wobbling around, but can start to engage Trump as the forward-moving choice. Uh, I mean, she was there. She can say, I saw Trump at his best, but then I saw him veer off on the wrong path. Uh, and she did a little of that on fiscal issues in debate one. But if she can kind of double down, she can become, in Iowa and New Hampshire, the lead opponent. And that's how you beat Trump. You beat him in those two states. I think it's over. So he's giving fuel to the scenario where he gets in trouble by not showing up. Well, it's fair to say that you're know, talking about national polls don't mean anything because it's not a national primary. But even in the state polls, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, you know, the home of Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott, his numbers are very, very impressive. So it's not just nationally. It just looks like he's, you know, early. You say that if, you know, if she can beat him or come close to uh, beating him in the first two states, we have a race there. But at the same time, if he wins big in the first two states, and certainly if he clears the field... Oh, then he runs the table. It's over. I mean, even if you beat him in Iowa, Scott's theory was, I'll be the Christian President Huckabee, President Scott, I'll beat him in Iowa. won't matter, because when you do well in Iowa, you can have some trouble in New Hampshire if you're not very adroit. Then Trump has a comeback, and the loser becomes a winner, and he runs the table. I will say, and I see a lot of the private super PAC polling, Trump, who 100% of the Republican voters know, is down to the high 30s in New Hampshire and right around 40, 41 in Iowa. I've seen him as low as 34 in the recent round. So, yeah, he's got 100%. 100% of the dogs have had Trump chow in those states. And, you know, six out of 10 are, are sniffing other food. So that doesn't mean he's going to lose, but that means a race can break out. And, and you know that primary vote breaks very late. Uh, so, and they're interconnected. Iowa does have an effect in many ways on New Hampshire. So, you know, is Trump the most likely to be nominated? Absolutely. Is this thing the lock that the national media says it is? Eh, uh, ask me on, on January 5th. Yeah, although I can't remember anybody with such a huge lead like this and went on to lose the nomination. I mean, yes, you know, Walter Mondale had this huge lead and then lost New Hampshire big. But he eventually regained uh, Right, it. and yeah. the same with John McCain. John McCain, you know, uh, George W. Bush had this big lead in 2000, and then he got clobbered in New Hampshire, but uh, like, you know, like yeah, Mondale. We, we, I agree. It, it's never happened. On the other hand, we've never elected a reality TV star who got famous by firing Gary Busey for not selling enough snow cones, <laughs> you know, on a phony reality show where people are paid to pretend to work for him. So, you know, the future is always unmade. But, yeah, the normal pattern would be Trump has some early trouble and limps to the nomination. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I won't bet a lot against it, but I, uh, I, I want to actually see an early state primary. And if he keeps skipping debates, he's giving, uh, he, he's creating a, a one centralized strongest opponent, which could very well be Haley. You know, we talked about the closest uh, uh, challenger to Trump was Ron DeSantis. And I mean, my goodness, when when it was over, when the first debate was over, I, I said, Mike, you know, he was absolutely a non-factor at all. The fact that no other candidate attacked him uh, made me think that, well, they don't think he's important enough because he just, it seemed like he had rehearsed, well, everybody has a rehearsed answer, but it just seemed like he was throwing out uh, slogans and not really answering the questions to begin with. He would always have this lectures that had nothing to do with the question. I thought if Haley was the most impressive, and I thought she was, I agree with you, I thought DeSantis was the worst because somebody who was supposed to come in as the key challenger to Trump showed me nothing. Yeah, DeSantis was a creation of the preseason bubble. 
which is pundits and, and large donors all talking to each other and kind of anointing somebody long before the voters. You know, we all remember President John Glenn on the Democratic side. There's always some early unstoppable magic candidate at the, that the elite world kind of piles on because they've got it all figured out. And then the voters show up and say, yeah, don't worry, not, not what I'm looking for. So I think DeSantis is something. How dare those voters may have a choice, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. We figured it out here. And it's been fun to watch the movable feast of the, you know, it's only the donors voted. And by donors, I mean people who bundle hard dollar or, or write a fifty or $100,000 or even quarter million dollar super PAC check. The ultra multi-million donors are a small subset. Some of them are for Trump. But if the kind of traditional high dollar donors of the party, say 5,000, 6,000 of them, with maybe 500 real alphas there, if they voted, Trump would lose three to one. So they started with DeSantis. He, he was the great plan. And then he faltered. Then they went to Tim Scott, who I had some hopes for, because I like his optimism. I think he could have been really refreshing. But he's such a beta, he's in, afraid to you know, engage Trump. They had to change his Secret Service name after the first debate to Vice President Wannabe, because <laughs> he just won't do anything you know, a, a candidate has to do. Now they're all moving from him to Haley. The difference is she's showing at least some ability to make some stew. And, uh, but, you know, she need, if she has a bad debate, uh, boom, then that kind of evaporates. And then finally you got the sideshow with Ramaswamy, who's not going to be nominee, but is this kind of buzzing little sideshow self-propelled thing, which I think kind of hurts Trump because I think he pulls some of those sort of voters. But he's just kind of noise in the way, and she's used him as a foil pretty well. You know, I was watching Tim Scott in the debate, and he said, when I'm president, we're going to get rid of Merrick Garland. I said, wow, that's a pretty gutsy move. I think when any Republican is president, they get rid of Merrick Garland. But it just seemed like he yeah, did. He, he ran out after of... the IRS next. Yeah, he's yeah. been in the cheap applause business. It's too bad. He has, he has a great I, I thought there was tremendous potential for him, and he raised a ton of money. But, you know, anyway, we'll see. Maybe he'll be reborn uh, at the debate. But I, I think he's... Even worse than DeSantis, just from an opportunity cost, I thought he had a bad debate. Even if you, you can make the argument that, that Trump is hurting himself by not showing up, but I think when you see six of the eight candidates raise their hand, say they'd support him if he were you know, yeah. the, the nominee and convicted, including Nikki Haley, I thought that just like took the sale out of everybody else. So like, yeah, why bother? No, I agree. I thought it was her biggest mistake. Uh, you know, they all seem to think that they can somehow be head of the pride without biting any other lions, or at least not biting the top lion. The way this works, it's an alpha contest. At the end, there's a young lion with a bloody mouth and an old lion limping away. So, you know, it, by, they're, they're trying to praise Trump to death. I don't, know, I don't know how that works. Again, Nikki started on the fiscal stuff, which I thought was very shrewd in debate one. But then after the debate, she didn't do anything. You know, she kind of dropped it all and wanted to attack Kamala Harris and some carom shot that gives you a migraine headache to try to figure out. So she's got one more shot. She's got a little action in the early states. The ingredients are starting to line up. But she better understand that unless there's a real tactics change and she can find a way to engage Trump, not be Christie with the dynamite vest, but go at him sideways. I was there. I saw it. I saw the best. I saw the worst. I saw him turn away, and then, you know, Kim Jong-il, Putin. Uh, unless she tries that, she's going to lose, you know. Unless something happens, they're all going to lose. Well, that comes back to the other question, whether whether these debates really mean anything at all. I mean, 
you know, I mean, I think we both remember, you know, Ronald Reagan paying for that microphone in New Hampshire and, and Rick Perry's famous oops, you know, in 2012. But, but right. for the most part, do these, do they matter? Yeah, I, I will argue they do. They're not as important as they used to be because there's so many other channels of communication. But the race is fundamentally different now. Haley's back alive. She's got the best candidate skills, and she's becoming the, it's becoming a three-way race between Trump, Haley for the regulars and the time to move beyond Trump conservatives, and Vivek kind of buzzing around making everybody in the country want to buy flypaper. <laughs> that's the dynamic that's emerging here when it starts to count, which is, as you well know, the last 10 weeks in the early states. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking when I was watching Ramaswamy during the debate, he had this Alan Keyes thing about him that yes. he, he's the smartest guy in the room and, and he's only he makes sense. But, my God, he, he just wanted to just slap him around. Yeah. No, no, I agree. You want to, like, hood him like a falcon to shut him up. That's an old Dennis Miller joke. I couldn't resist borrowing. Just finally, you know, it looks like these two candidates um, – Doug Burgum and uh, and Isa Hutchinson Hutchinson are probably not going to make the cut for the second debate. Now, of course, they were the longest of long shots anyway. But did they bring anything to the table? Is it worth? You know, I I like them both. I feel sorry for Burgum, who's a smart guy. I had some hopes at the beginning. I liked his announcement video, and I thought oh, maybe he can run as the the move beyond all this horseshit Western guy. Uh, but he didn't. You know, he just wants to talk about being Secretary of Energy. And Aza is a great guy, but he doesn't have the base to really do this. So they should probably be debating each other on shortwave because they're just not factors. I was, I, w I thought on paper somebody could do something with Bergam, but he was so not ready for prime time in so many ways. I thought Scott had the money and the story and to be the one optimistic forward conservative and draw the social conservative line against Trump uh, and run an Iowa and New Hampshire campaign together, which is the tricky threading of a needle totally failed. So now, even though I've been a critic of hers, uh, I think Nikki's the one with the shot. We'll see if she can do anything about it. Mike Murphy is a Republican strategist and consultant, a never-Trumper, and one of the smartest people in the GOP, according to me. Mike, thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Ken. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. <laughs>